Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is the podcast where we debate the difficult decisions of books and reading. I always thought we needed a tagline, so there we go. Put it in. Oh, okay, that's new. Yeah, because um, everyone's like, why is it called Tea or Books? And most people call it Tea and Books, but a little explanation. Um, in this episode, we will be doing Style versus Substance in the first half, and in the second half, two novels by Henry Green, Living and Loving, which isn't quite what we advertised we would do. We did say it was going to be Loving by Henry Green and The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen, and I can't quite remember how we ended up where we are, but here we are, and that's what we've done. More or not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like most things with this podcast, it was a sort of a muddle, and it just something happened, and then well, there we were. So, um, yeah. Rachel... Happy end of term. How are you? What are you reading? Um, I'm good, thanks. I've got two weeks of holiday unfolding before me, so I'm very pleased about that. Um, I need it. I'm exhausted. Um, I know. It's hard. Sorry, was that that too late? Oh, poor Rachel. Also insincere, but you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, I know you care, Simon. Deep, 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 deep down. Very deep down. So deep. so I'm reading two books at the moment. Well, I would say reading. I sort of was reading one, and then I've stopped to read another one, and I will go back to the other one. So I'm not really reading. Oh, I thought you become polygamous. Yeah. I know. Polyamory. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched a documentary about that once. It's eye-opening. Um, <laughs> so I am reading Invisible Women. Um, Me too. Oh, how coincidental! Yeah. Um, it's, I'm finding it very interesting. I keep I'm reading it in bed and. I keep calling out statistics to my flatmate who and we're both getting ourselves very cross before we go to bed. Um, I don't explain who, what it is and who it's by. Oh, yes, no, sorry, of course. Um, so it's by Caroline Criado Perez. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apologies if not, Caroline. Um, and it's a book about how the world is basically um, biased against women and uses data from a huge array of different areas of life so from the workplace from medicine for to um yeah technology uh and and you know she's done a lot of research into looking at how and and why women are basically always not considered uh, are not considered intentionally or uninten most of the time unintentionally mm. Um, so a, a, an example would be um crash there's they've never tested um that never used a pregnant crash test dummy to check how pregnant women would be affected in a car accident, for example, because mm. the people who work in those positions are men and it's never occurred to them to do so. All these, so it's just a litany of things. And if you start reading it, you just, I mean, I've just been really angry and been quoting it at people. It is quite overwhelming, isn't it? Like every page has like five or six examples of how mm. the world is sexist. And it's... stuff you just don't think about. You know, yeah. I don't even think about it. Yeah, that is interesting because I'm reading it and thinking this is all awful, but most of them are things that because I have sort of male privilege and don't notice, you know, things that advantage me because they're not disadvantaging me. I'm thinking, is is it the same for a woman reading it? Is it things you're like, oh, I'd never spotted that? Or is it like, oh, yes, Caroline, that is annoying? Or is it just a mixture? I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it's a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um my friend Philippa recommended it to me because, well, in fact, I think she recommended it on Facebook generally to men. She said, women don't need to read this, men need to read this. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. I, I will. And I am. Good. Well done, Simon. Thank you for Thank you. Well, I thought I'd look 
care about that minority group of over half the world that apparently data scientists don't. <laughs> but, yeah. I just feel, it just makes me incensed. I've just been really incensed about it, and I was, I've been um, moaning at my sixth form students about it, who most of whom are girls, um, and being like quoting stats at them. Like, yes, <laughs> have you ever talked about feminism? I'm like, girls, you need to get interested. Yes, yes, and they do. Like, and then they, one of them was like, "Is this why you're so angry all the time?" I was like, "Yeah, I think it probably is." I'm In like, words. Yeah, of Solange Knowles, you got a lot to be mad about. Yeah, sure have. Um, not angry at them, I might like to say. I just get angry <laughs> about stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, you'd be angry about stuff if you've been discriminated against your whole life. Um, which they have, arguably. But, but they just don't know yet, yeah. but they will. Um, and then the second book I'm reading, which um, I realised is actually the very first Virago book I ever bought. Hmm. So you can imagine how many years <laughs> I must have been lugging this around with me. Um, over 20 um, wow. years. Well, no, about 20 years, I should think. Um, and it's Dorothy Canfield Fisher's Her Son's Wife, which mm. um, many people listening may know Dorothy Canfield Fisher from Persephone's The Homemaker. Um, it's wonderful. I'm absolutely loving it, ripping through it like there's no tomorrow. Um, it's about a woman who's a widow and she has devoted all of her energies all her life to the, the upbringing of, of her son. Um, who, her husband died very soon after she got married, so she brought him up by herself. And then he, um, he's a bit of a waster really and he goes off to university and gets married to a very unsuitable woman. Um, because he's made her pregnant. And then they come back and live with her and it's an absolute disaster and it's, uh, it's really fascinating character study and, um, you know, there's, she tries not to be the mother-in-law, you know, but, mm. um, you can see many, uh, it's, it's kind of one of those books where you can sympathize, but at the same time, you, you have to kind of, you can think, well, actually, if you stopped and thought about the way that you're being, I don't think I particularly want to live with you either. So, it's, <laughs> um, it's very interesting. It's very, and it's, I'm actually quite surprised that Persephone haven't republished it. Hmm. Unless there's some issue with Virago, but um, it's because it's out of print as far as I can tell. So, um, but it's it's absolutely fantastic, and it's reminded me how much I love Dorothy Campbell Fisher. I know you didn't like the last one that we read for the podcast, but I didn't hate it. No, but, you didn't, but I would admit that's not her best. I will say. That. Well, I've never read her son's wife, so maybe we should do that for an episode at some point. Yeah, I think it's it. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, and I do have it. It's been on my shelves not quite 20 years, but probably at least 15. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. there we are. Um, great. Well, I have, uh, obviously reading lots of things as usual, but I'm, one of them is um, A Bite of the Apple by Lenny Goodings, which I don't oh, think... Oh, yeah, from not... Virago. Yes, I'm not sure it's quite out yet. I've got a review copy, but if not, it's coming out soon. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's a, basically a memoir of Virago. Mm. So it's not her life, it is just her experience at Virago from... Um, starting at the bottom of the ladder in that moment. Well, she's writing quite a lot about their their lists in general, not really, not that much about her sort of day to day work there. So it is basically more of an overview of Rago, but very interesting. Really enjoying it. Um, she writes a lot about feminism as well. What feminism? Feminism. feminism. Um, sorry, stumbling over my words. It was like mm-hmm. at the time, what it's like in her childhood, what it's um, in Australia, no Canada, sorry, um, and what it's like now and yeah i mean obviously the virago modern classics chapter was the one i enjoyed the most and i wish that could have lasted forever but i'm enjoying the others because 
I didn't realise for quite a few years that Virago did anything but Virago Modern Classics. And obviously they have a massive world yeah. of things that they do. Well, they were the first people to publish Barbara Atwood in the UK, I think. Yes, I, in fact, I, that was in the chapter I've just finished. It was all about yeah. that. So there you go. Lots about Margaret Atwood as sort of the, not only one of the first um, books, sorry, not only one of sort of pioneering feminist writers, but also one of the first successful Canadian literary novelists, apparently. Oh. Which I don't think can possibly be true, because there's people like Ethel Wilson and Stephen Leacock, and, but I won't argue with Lenny, she knows more than I do. Um, this is as good a time as any to talk about the British Library Women Writers reprints that I haven't talked about on here before. Yes. Please do tell us more. So people may already know, but um, for those who don't, I have been asked to be, well, I am the series consultant for a new reprint series from the British Library of Women Writers. I know, series consultants. I love it. (laughs) Um, So the idea is they'll be reprinting four books by and about women from between the 1910s and 1950s that are completely out of print, uh, but four every six months is the plan. And obviously I couldn't think of any books that I wanted to do from that period. It means nothing to me. (laughs) It was a dream, and I can't believe I get to do it. Uh, The first four are Molly Pantadown's My Husband Simon, uh, Venya Delmer's Bad Girl, May Sinclair's The Tree of Heaven, and Chatterton Square by E.H. Young that we did an episode on some time ago. Yes, I enjoyed that bit. Yeah. Um, three of them they'd already chosen by the time I came on board for the first batch, but Chatterton Square was my suggestion. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out in March and April in the UK and next year in the US. Very exciting. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since they asked me, and it looked like it might not happen at various times. Um, but it it is, it's happening, and hopefully it will be a wonderful success and they'll let me do it forever. Um, well, I don't see why not. Fingers crossed. And if you, Rachel, or you, the listener, have any out-of-print books by women from between 1910 and 1959 that you would love to see back in print, let me know. Um, I'm sure I can think of many. I'm sure you can. Please send me a list. Um, I mean, not off the top of my head, but, you know, yeah. give me some time and I'll Please. think about have it. Have as much time yeah. as you like. Yeah. I've, I've chosen the next four, but they haven't been confirmed yet, so I can't say what they are. But I can tell you I'll later, be- Rachel. Okay, yeah, you can tell me later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very exciting. And whilst we're doing news with this is um have you seen the exciting marilyn robinson news no next book in the gilead series coming out in september hooray Stop, that's so exciting and what's it gonna be called jack i knew it would be about ah, him who readers sorry listeners and indeed readers may well remember is the son of reverend ames friend and he's a lot of the second book um is about him he also appears in the other books but we haven't heard anything from his point of view, so that's what I'm hoping Jack might be. Oh, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, the gift that keeps giving, that series. It really does. I mean, what with that and the new Hilary Mantle coming out, I mean, it's a, a year of exciting stuff. Embarrassment of riches. Mm. Very seldom you'll hear us be excited about a forthcoming book, but this time, <laughs> <laughs> or at least me. Because uh, I got very excited when people started talking about the new Gilead book last year, and it turns out they meant the Testaments. I was like, well, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's Gilead. rubbish anyway. So. But yes, we might might do some rereading of the Gilead books before September. Yeah, I would love to. I've actually lent, I've got Gilead lent out at the moment and Lila lent out. So I, I need to um, <laughs> start need with to, home. Yeah, I need to get them back in so I can reread. 
And despite how often we talk about them, we've never actually done an episode on them. So no, we, we haven't. We could do. We ought to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. So the first half. Uh, is sort of a topic suggested by Rosemary. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, in that she wrote and said, um, what do we think makes good writing? Which I have twisted into what our usual X versus Y to your book's decision-making style question by saying style versus substance, which you can interpret as good writing versus plot, etc. But let's start with um, what do we think makes writing good or bad? What's your instinctive thought? Um, well, I mean, for me, it's got to be about how it makes you feel when you read it. And it's, it's got to be expressive. It's got to be emotionally affecting. It's got to be, have a distinctive style particular to that author. Something I don't like Mm. is writing that is, is clearly derivative or is trying to emulate a particular style. And I think, I've moan, I moan about this frequently on my blog, so people won't be surprised at me saying this. But I, I do think this proliferation of um, creative writing courses in the last mm. few years has has produced a kind of, in a way, a sort of house style, if you like. And a lot of new books that come out are along the same lines. It's the it's uh, you know present tense, first person, lots of every other line is a simile or a metaphor. Uh, all this and it's. Um, I just find it very boring and it, they all read the same. You haven't, it's very rare these days that you find a new novel that's got a genuinely distinctive creative voice. Um, the only exception, I mean, I, I've discovered quite recently Max Porter, who's, who wrote Grief is the Thing with Feathers and Lanny is his new book. And normally I'm very sniffy about, um, people who are a bit too experimental, you know, the sort mm. of wave, wavy lines on the page and that sort of thing. Um, but those books really blew me away because the voice was so individual, so unique, and the writing was just absolutely beautiful. It was a pleasure to read, but also a really effective story. And I just love it when people can manipulate language cleverly and can put together the most beautiful um, descriptions that just make you think, oh my goodness, yes, that is exactly what that tastes like, or that's exactly what that sounds like, or that's exactly what that feels like. Um, I think Elizabeth Bowen is another one who always makes me feel like, oh, that's so clever that you've put those two words together into a compound adjective and you've just made it mm. uh, exactly what it is. And I have never read any anybody else say that phrase or whatever, whereas a lot of these new books that are being churned out of these master's creative writing courses, you just see the same phrases, the same similes, the same metaphors, and I just find it boring. There you go. Yeah, um, Sorry, uh, yeah. I'm <laughs> Uh, yeah, I found it a lot easier to think about what I thought made bad writing than what I thought made good writing. So I think it's very easy to see if something is overwritten or yeah. if, um, which doesn't mean to say that I don't like f- fine writing. Like I always come back to Virginia Woolf. She never says a sentence straightforwardly, but it's done beautifully. And there's, but overwritten writing is when it's a failure, I guess, or when it's there for no purpose. Virginia Woolf's writing is always purposeful. It's always there to give you a new perspective on something. Um, so I think writing that is there for writing's sake, always bad. And, and perhaps the flip side of that is, for me, good writing is, I guess, like yeah, pretty much like you say, it presents the ideas and the people in a new and fresh way that um, it achieves more than some of its parts, 
But that doesn't have to be fine rendering, because I always think of um, George Orwell as well, who extremely plain stylistically, but brilliantly so. And it's the sort of writing that you don't really notice that it's good writing until you've got to the end of a chapter or whatever, and you think, oh, wow, that was really effective. And I've just read um, Chess by Stefan Zweig. Um, my, my German friend was telling me I was mispronouncing Zweig, and I should be saying Zweig, but I think I'm still getting it wrong. But anyway, you know who I mean. Um, <laughs> and which whilst I was reading the words of the translator, so I don't know what the original German was like, that was another one where it was quite plain, but it really um, was, was evocative just because it was always slightly unexpected. Um, yeah, so I think for me, good writing is there has to be an element of it's not what you think you think it's going to be if if you're if you're expecting a simile or a metaphor that you've seen before or if you're expecting um characters to react in a certain way then that seems to me like it's writing that has just been learned from other writing rather than a fresh take on like observing people yeah but at the same time that i mean that covers I think I can cover comic fiction as well and sarcastic fiction, also things that aren't trying to do the sort of Elizabeth Bowen, like get beneath the skin of people type thing. It can also be ones that are mocking the characters or are deliberately grotesque. Like, I mean, Dickens, I think, is a brilliant writer, but he's not hes not trying to get under the skin of people and give a really realistic portrait of anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's one of the most distinctive writers ever, I think. So to go with your distinctive thing, definitely that. But... Um, yeah, does does um, well that's writing. <laughs> but do you think that it has changed? You say there's lots of you're not very impressed by the modern stock of like writings, um, MA novels. But do you think that we can see the quality of writing changing in sways over time, or is it just those are the ones that are getting published and all the um, publicity, or what's going on? Well, I mean, I th- I, my theory is that as we move into a more technological society where we've all got shorter attention spans, um, it's become writing has become much more focused around what can grab people instantly. Mm. And, you know, lots of short sentences, lots of lazy metaphors and similes, because apparently none of us have got imaginations anymore. And that that kind of what I would call sort of slow writing of the... 19th century or the 20th century that's very descriptive that's very much about drawing a picture has been replaced now by um action 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 and it's all about stuff happening all the time and there's no time for prose to just un like to have a sort of paragraph of prose that's not necessarily moving the plot forward but is this just helping to build a sense of a character or a place um and and all of that quality of writing that you see in older fiction is being wiped away um and i think that's that's because plot and um plot is being emphasized in new fiction over anything else and novels aren't just plot you know it's anybody could write a a bodice ripper or whatever that's going to be here today gone tomorrow i mean the charity shops are full of them but if you want to write something that's going to stay with people and resonate with people and that people want to reread and come back to and that will be more timeless then the writing is absolutely essential to that i mean why do we still read jane austen yes her characters are wonderful but her writing is brilliant 
But I will also say with Jane Austen, her writing obviously brilliant and her character's brilliant, but nobody plots like Jane Austen as well. It's well, just no, so watertight and just and and I think what makes hers so clever is that it's not like a sensation novel where the plot is front and centre and you're always, you know, end of chapter, oh, gosh, what's gonna happen in the next one type mm. thing. But you think afterwards that her plotting, particularly in Pride and Prejudice, I think, is just so clever. Um, and I always I don't think of that is tied up with the writing though. The, the because the plot is tied in with the writing because the writing is so clever because she just slips little things yes, in that's true, that's and true. she distracts you at the same time. It's like with Emma, for example, you've got this narrative, the narrator that you trust completely and then gradually, only really on a second reading, do you see how cleverly she has basically performed a sleight of hand like a magician by mm-hmm. coming up and that is excellent writing and you just don't get that nowadays um i'm gonna go on a mild tangent but it does relate to what you just said did okay. you ever read did you ever read point horror when you were a teenager or pre-teen? i did i did yeah <laughs> i was obsessed with it um and somebody oh that's bad i can't remember who just recommend recently recommended to me uh, a podcast called Teenage Scream which basically okay. is going back through the point horror books <laughs> and mocking them uh, which I'm loving because obviously most of the point of horror books were just terrible. <laughs> um, looking back, probably probably dimly knew that at the time, but um, yeah. And uh, what I was thinking about metaphors. Oh, Layla, Layla recommended it to me. Um, one of the metaphors that they had that made me think of when you were saying about bad imagery was um, that there's someone whose voice is like chocolate being spilled on the floor, dark and unpleasant and impossible to clean up. Which I <laughs> enjoyed, because how can a voice be impossible to clean up? What does that mean? <laughs> so if you're looking for bad imagery, teenage fiction from the 90s is probably the place to go. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that kind of, of style is what I see in a lot of these books now, these kind of ridiculous metaphors and similes that literally make no sense. And they're just being used because it's like, oh, isn't this, you know, really sort of emote like wonderful writing where it's all thick with all of these effects and whatever it's like that's not good writing that's just crap yeah and i don't agree with people who say which is obviously not you're saying but people who say they just want the story to be told without any flourishes and without any metaphors because i think used well can be so effective and really change your perspective on what what you're reading like Catherine mansfield is wonderful at it all sorts of writers um use it brilliantly but it's when it's like oh i haven't had a metaphor for a few lines i better get one in um yeah it's quite annoying uh in terms of style substance and style and plot and writing i always used to say that i would read anything if the writing was good and i didn't really care what it was about and i think i'm changing generally on that front in that there are I mean, if someone says says to me, oh, I'm reading this novel about this cranky spinster who's opening a tea shop, then I will read that book. I don't (laughs) care what it's written like. Um, Have we talked about Business as Usual by, I think it's Anne Stafford? Not sure. Um, It's it's being reprinted soon by Handheld Press, which is a book from the 1930s, I think, told in letters about a woman working in the book uh, department of a department store. Um, and it is a wonderful book, but even if it was the most workmanlike prose, that would appeal to me. So I think I am getting more, um, sort of a nice way to say sort of stuck in my habits <laughs> when it comes to themes that I'm less willing to just read about anyone doing anything. Mm. I don't know about you. When, when, when you're selecting books, is it, does, does the subject matter, 
how 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 weighty is that in terms of your decision making? Well, I mean, obviously there will be particular books that will jump out on me straight away, and I'll think, oh yes, that's right up my street. Anything that's nineteenth century or um, deals with um, you know female issues or get anything like you've just described that, that kind of um, sort of nineteen thirty style setting or um, something that that might um, be to do with. I don't know, books or whatever, but I, I will always have a look at the first few pages first mm, because I, mm. even if I love the idea of the plot, I love the idea of the characters, I think, oh, yeah, this is totally up my street. If I can't get on with the writing, then I, I, I won't read it. I mean, I really, being an English teacher has ruined me in many ways because I'm so pernickety about um, things like grammar and punctuation and, te- like, similes and metaphors and if i see anything clunky i just thought i can't do it yeah i certainly i always go to sort of page 50 or so because then i think someone might have honed their first few pages really well but yeah. by the time they got to page 50 you it's, it's likely to be the sort of style the whole of the book is in you need to check if that's all right yeah and i i think you know a plot is great and uh, there are stories that are wonderful. You know, sometimes you just want to read a bit of a rubbishy book and it doesn't need to be anything beautiful. But I think even books that are a bit more sort of saga style, a bit of a pot boiler, um, they do still tend to be quite well written. For example, the Cazalet series is beautifully written and is not considered to be highbrow literature, largely because it's it's mostly about middle class women. Um, so obviously how how could it be considered to be worthy of um, you know, attention? But um you know, if you think about Persephone books, they're all books that have got brilliant plots, really involving emotional, human-led stories, but the writing is also well-crafted. It's nothing, like, you wouldn't read it and think, oh my goodness, this is this is amazing, this is, you know, so well-written, I just need to, like, lie down on the floor and soak my <laughs> Like, you would with Virginia Woolf. Yeah. It's, the reason why it's so readable is because the prose is so readable. And I think sometimes when the prose, it, it kind of blends into the background and allows you to, to read the story, that's also excellent writing. It's when I, uh, um, so the writing is, I can't get past the writing to get to the plot. That's bad writing. Yes, I think that's fair. Because sometimes the writing is the star, but if it's if it's an obstruction, then yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I've been reading this uh, memoir about Virago, and it's mentioned the Whipple line that I'm sure you've come across. Yes. Um, and I'll just explain for those who don't. This was a line that, um, what was her name? Carmen Khalil, used to, who used to be the editor of Virago, something high of Virago. And she, um, when they were looking for books to reprint for Virago Modern Classics, they said they wouldn't go below the Whipple line because they thought the prose of Dorothy Whipple was so bad, which... Those of us who know and love and read Dorothy Whipple in the Persephone reprints, um, I was going to say, obviously don't agree with. I think her worst books aren't great, but but her best books are very, very good. Um, and I was thinking, who? what sort of person is it who says that Dorothy Whipple's writing is terrible and will publish Mary Webb? Well, What's going on there? Yeah, bizarre. Mary Webb, the worst writer I've ever come across. I'm going to say that. Is that, is that too far? I don't know. I think she's just... She, for those who aren't familiar, she does those wildly overwritten rural... Or did those wildly overwritten rural novels of the sort of 20s and 30s, I guess. The sort of thing that Cold Comfort Farm was satirising. And just yeah. unspeakably bad. Yes. But Virago thought they were good enough to reprint, apparently, in the 80s at some point. Well, I just... I can't imagine why. I mean, for me, Dorothy Whipple's writing is absolutely lovely to read. 
and you know it's as I say it's they're so easy to read like that's it's like Dorothy Campbell Fisher I'm just falling into her book at the moment because the writing is just it just flows it's just expressive and but it's it's not obstructing me in any way um and you know Virginia Woolf I, I find often I can't quite find the plot in her books um but they're they're so beautifully written I don't mind because I'm just enjoying the language but that's quite rare for me um to go language focused like that but for you know as I say if you can't if you're constantly stopping because you're like what is the hell is that supposed to mean or why have you used that metaphor or this is so bad I can't even go on then you know it's it's not good and I, I do do think it's I do think it's it's kind of teaching people how to write I think it's quite difficult to do because ultimately it's all down to an individual voice and everybody kind of expresses themselves in their own ways and a lot of people who unfortunately aren't natural writers are being told that they, they can write and they're being told if you follow this format if you do this if you do this you do this and then you end up with just an absolute detritus of awful books that you know, are being published for reasons I can't fathom, and <laughs> we're all being. Some of must think they're good. Yeah. Mediocrity. Well, often they tick a box, don't they? And going back to the plot thing, whilst I'm quite happy to read a book that doesn't have much plot, if it's a, you know, if it's in the, in a comfortable area for me, most of the things where I say I'm not interested in reading that are to do with plot rather than style. So when I say that I don't like historical fiction, I don't really want to read sci-fi, I don't want to read high fantasy. I'm lumping in everything that's in terms of writing style because I'm sure you can get very literary versions and very non-literary versions of all those things mm. so I shouldn't have on too much about the writing because I there are a lot of things that I'm turning down because of the substance well and I guess genre generally I mean apart from literary fiction in commas, whatever that means in practice are based on plot rather than style mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. interesting so I mean it sounds like a simple decision but I'm actually not sure which one I would choose because I think I'd rather read a badly written novel about you know people living in a castle somewhere and not doing very much than I would um, read a very w- well written sci-fi historical novel what, have, what, what would I mean? I don't know if those are the good examples for you, but if it was a, a genre that you didn't like at all, but it was well written, would you go to that, or would uh, would you go to a media, media mediocre nineteen thirties domestic novel? Well, I can always enjoy a mediocre nineteen thirties domestic novel. That's fine. I mean, mediocre is fine. I just can't do terrible, and I can't do overwritten. Like overwritten for me is just like that is it? I cannot bear it. It's that's what I I cannot bear about these these modern MA ones where every single word has been thought about and you know eked every every <laughs> sentence has been kind of structured to make an effect and I just think oh I just can't bear it it's not natural yeah hmm so what are you going to pick then out of style and substance in that case I would have to go for for substance I think that's the opposite of what you just said is <laughs> it <laughs> I don't know okay writing or plot I'll put it like that writing then yeah i think that's yeah. that's what i meant by style yeah. and substance I think. sorry i'm not listening <laughs> um yes yeah, so um i think i am going to just nudge over into style as well because yeah if it's a merry web i can't get beyond two pages whereas i at least can try to get i've read a few sci-fi novels that i have liked it's for example so good writing really really good writing might persuade me to get through something that i'm not 
interested in, whereas really bad writing, I can't cope. No. And I don't know if we've quite answered what we think good and bad writing are, Rosemary, but hopefully there's some clues in there. I don't think it's quite as simple to say writing's got worse over time, but definitely types of writing have come to prominence that we're not such fans of. Yes. Yes. Well, so I've actually got two things for this middle section. Excited, Rachel. Okay, I'm ready. I'm hoping I can actually answer some questions. (laughs) So one is a question, and one is I put out a question to our patrons on Patreon. So I'll do that one first, in fact, just because it's interesting what the answers were. Um, I said, if you could force one of us, um, or both of us, to read a particular book, what would you choose? Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... And the first one, Randy said, I would force Simon to read Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. I need Simon to like Edith Wharton. Well, Randy, I have read The The Age of Innocence, so you succeeded. (laughs) But I didn't like it very much. Sacrilege. You've not succeeded. I can't remember why I didn't like it very much. I think I just found it a bit annoying. Sorry, you're a big Edith Wharton fan, aren't you? I love Edith Wharton. Sorry, Randy. One out of two is not bad. Um... Elizabeth says The Wednesday Wars by Gary Schmidt. Do you know that? Never heard of it. It's a middle grade novel. I don't really know what that means. Is that it's middle like, school sort of age? Yeah, so it's it's not young. It's l- younger than young adult. It tends to be like mm, about nine, eight, three to about 11 or 12 years. Okay, and um, apparently it's very funny and he has a distinctive style and he weaves redemption into his stories in compelling but subtle ways. And she recommends that to both of us. It does sound like something that you'd like, I think. And maybe me. But it's like, you you like a story of redemption, don't you? Yeah. Yep. Always. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. That's The Wednesday Wars by Gary Schmidt. Something to look out for. Um, and finally, Michelle says... Oh, no. Michelle asked some other questions that we can do a different time. <laughs> she has not said any questions. <laughs> Rebecca um, says Nine Coaches Waiting by Mary Stewart which is 1950s gothic mystery suspense at its best, loaded with the atmosphere reminiscent of Jane Eyre and Rebecca. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, we hate Rebecca and Jane Eyre, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Have you read any Mary Stewart? No, I haven't, but I've had her um, recommended to me several times, and I've, I've seen that she's been reprinted quite recently, so I would be interested in, in looking at that, yeah. Nine Coaches Waiting. So I recently bought Thorny Hold by Mary Stewart on the recommendation of my friend Kirsty and my friend Lean. I thought if they both like it, it must be great. But they, I got a sort of fairly horrible 1980s paperback, but there are some really beautiful reprints that have just been coming out. So maybe I'll have a look at Nine Coaches Waiting. Well, I mean, I will, yeah, I'll put that on my on my list for when I'm allowed to purchase books again. Of course, yes. <laughs> mm. uh, thank you, Rebecca. Um, and Michelle, we'll come back to your questions another time. But Gregory's question for this time... He, he says, in a recent film about the relationship, it was clear that Virginia Woolf thought Peter Sackville West was an inferior author or maybe too conventional. What do you think? Wow. Um, I think they're very, they're so different. I don't think you, you could, that would really be fair because Virginia Woolf's writing is obviously completely, she's, she was trying for a completely different effect. She was attempting to push the boundaries of what, fiction could be and what writing mm. could be and Vita Sackville West is, is telling more perhaps conventional stories but um, I wouldn't say that she was an inferior novelist I think she's 
I think she's a great novelist. I think I haven't read all of her novels, but the ones of that I have read, I've massively enjoyed. I mean, I think All Passion Spent is brilliant. I thought The Air was brilliant. I love The Edwardians. Um, they're fantastic novels. They really conjure up a certain period in time, and her writing is really beautiful. Um, I think Virginia Woolf is a wonderful stylist, um, but not always a wonderful novelist. Ooh, what do you mean by that? In terms of, they're not books that you can't put down. They're not great stories. Oh, okay. Um, yes, I... Um, we did an episode on the air uh, and all passion spent quite a long time ago, actually. So that's one to look up if you want to hear our full thoughts on on Vita. Ooh. But um, I, yeah, I think Vita Tyler West is a massively underrated novelist. Uh, something like the air is really beautifully written as well as interesting, and she does sort of things like um, the Edwardians and East of Hearty and things that are more sort of driven by story. But I think she's the, I think she's a really good writer and. Um, I recently read The Death of Noble Godavery by her, which um, has one of the most extraordinary endings, very atmospheric and very striking. It will stay with me for a very long time. I won't say what it is because it's a bit of a twist in the in the novella, but definitely recommend that. Oh, okay. And she did even do sort of quite experimental s- stuff in terms of s- um, structure and stuff. The um, Grand Canyon is, um, what's the word for it? Like, for like an alternative history where Germany has invaded England and all these different people have had to move to the um, next to the Grand Canyon. Um, and then halfway through, something very bizarre happens and they all have to go and move into the Grand Canyon. And it's all very sort of, it's alternative history and sci-fi and it's all very unexpected and she handles that really well. Um, I think Virginia Woolf was rather jealous that Vita Seva West made a lot of money from her books and indeed was the reason that the Hogarth Press stayed afloat, probably, because uh, they published The Edwardians, which was a massive bestseller. And Virginia Woolf, as we as we know, was very keen to earn a lot of money from her writing, cared a lot about how much she earned, how much other people earned, and I think that she was jealous of Vita Sapper West's commercial success and used to disparage her because of that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for asking, Gregory. Yeah. I've been interested to know your thoughts. Let me... Um, if, um, Gregory, and indeed anyone else, because I wasn't sure from your tweet if you uh, were a fan of Vita or if you disagreed or if you hadn't read any, etc. Um, if you've got a question you'd like us to consider, any reading advice or where to start with an author, etc., etc., get in touch at torbooks at gmail.com and we will do more or less any question you ask. Yeah. Speaking of Patreon, you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books. And I've been trying to think of a way to make that uh, more entertaining, more interesting for people who do. So I've started doing a little 10 minute Simon's Bookish bits in between each episode. So it's just me on my own talking about something to do with books, uh, what I'm reading, something going on in the book world. Um, and that's available to all patrons at all levels. Thank you so much to everyone who does support the podcast that way. It really helps. Thank you particularly to Michelle, Liana, Randy, Elizabeth, and Heather. Um, Back to the show. Um, And thanks to Bill for getting in touch to tell us to read Henry Green. A sort of muted thanks. Watch this space for (laughs) continuing that thought. But we read (laughs) Loving and Living, didn't we, Rachel? Um, Well, we we tried. Do you want to introduce us to Loving? Um, I can try to. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to reread it because I apparently I got rid of my copy. Um, so Loving is 
um, a book that is set in an Irish country house and you, um, Henry Green's novels are very much based on dialogue and telling a story through speech. There's not a lot of description. So what you hear in the book is the, um, the voices of the people upstairs, the people downstairs. And so you've got the, um, personal lives really of, of the household staff in this, in this Irish country house. And you've got the, um, the butler, Charlie, who's just got this post after the old butler has died and, um, everybody is a bit kind of upset about the fact that he's got the job and there's a housekeeper called Miss Birch who, who is really unhappy with the situation. We've got silly housemaids, um, who are sort of always giggling around the house and trying on with Charlie. Um, and it's what's really interesting about the book is that all of the staff are English and yet they're in Ireland and this is at the time when troubles are starting and um, there's a lot of ang- um What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I can't remember what I, my brain has gone blank. Um, antagonism, sure. that's the word. Antagonism, right. that's speak. <laughs> antagonism towards it. And there's, there's this kind of idea of these staff being in this sort of hostile place and there's this tension going on. So you've got tension within the house, you've got tension outside the house and um, it's also quite interesting to see how the woman, uh, the Mrs. Tennant here, um, is the owner of the house is kind of held to ransom by mm. her staff um and it's yeah there's just a lot of uh the the staff are kind of left to themselves for a long period of time and it's it's just an unfolding where you just see what they get up to when they're left to their own devices really yeah um and living is quite a different setup it's in a f- um in a iron foundry in birmingham in the 20s and that might be all I can tell you about it. <laughs> because whilst I did read it, I did not know what was going on. According to the back of the book, <laughs> there's the Duprets, who are the upper class owners, and then there's the working class people who work there, and some of them live together. Lily is apparently the heroine, um, and falls in love with someone called Bert. Um, but I, yeah. Oh my gosh, this book. <laughs> I, I read, Half of it in earnest, and then I probably skim read the, the end, second half. You got to about page twenty, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it just—it's—it's it's like those times when you're dreaming, and each moment of the dream makes sense, but but none of it connects up. So it wasn't like so impressionistic that I couldn't work out what the sentences meant. Although it wasn't quite natural writing, but I I knew what was going on by each sentence, but none of it would cohere. And I get to the end of a page and think, I don't know who any of these people are or what's happened. <laughs> I don't. That just kept going on and on. All the characters seemed the same, or basically like they didn't make individual people. Um, yeah, I I just I couldn't cope with it at all. Um, <laughs> I got really annoyed with the fact that there are no articles in the narrative, which apparently isn't meant to represent Birmingham's speech, but considering it was never in the speech, I'm not sure quite why that happened. Here's an, I wrote down, I noted an example from halfway through the book. Gathering coat, she hugged arms round body and folded in night and buried face in it in fur of her collar. So annoying. (laughs) (laughs) What are you achieving by doing this? Nothing. (laughs) 
Oh, I hated it. What do, why did you give up? <laughs> I just couldn't make head or tail what was going on. And I, I, I didn't know who was talking. And I, I mm. was kind of, because there's no description and it's all just dialogue. I was like, right, hang on, who are you again? And it was just got really confusing. And I couldn't understand who I was supposed to like or not like. And it was just bizarre. And I, I've, I was quite surprised by my reaction because I loved loving when I when I read it many years ago. I think it took me a while. I remember it took me a while to get into it, but once I was into it, I was really enjoying it. But I found it, it easier to follow because the characters all had quite distinctive voices. Where all of the characters in Living, I felt where he was trying to create the effect of a Birmingham accent, everybody sort of sounded the same. So it was really difficult to to really see and feel that each character was was a distinct individual with their own character character and their own plot line and their own motivations and everything else and it was you know it could have been really intriguing because it should have been really intriguing really you've got the factory you've got the community around the factory you've got all the different relationships going on there but it just I didn't really care and the prose was really difficult to get into the whole dialect thing was really I was annoyed by that I was like what's with this lack of grammar and it was just yeah it was just just a, a bit I didn't really understand what the story was. And I remember reading Court. So another one of his novels is called Court. Mm. And it's really, um, I, I really loved it because it was set in London during the Blitz and it was set amongst um, firefighters in the Blitz. And, and they're kind of, I don't know what you call it, it's not a mess, is it? Um, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Wherever they are. Um, their station, maybe it's called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was really interesting for the insight into what it was like to be a fireman in World War too but i remember getting frustrated with the lack of plot and this living i feel like is an extreme version of that and i wasn't really interested in the setting so i wasn't drawn in by the the idea of being in the factory and whatever else um if there had been an interesting setting i think it might have kept me interested a bit longer but because i didn't really care about the setting and i couldn't tell these characters apart i just thought i can't i just can't do this yeah, I just found it impenetrable, is the yeah. way I kept coming back to. And it's not like sort of um, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce or something where it is just words at random. These are, apart from the lack of articles, proper sentences. Yeah. It's just, I guess, the whole modernist experiment of trying to make prose resemble thought and make it more naturalistic has always had to be balanced against making something readable and making something obey the unwritten well it's trying to break i guess the unwritten laws of the novel yeah but if it but if it's doing that in such a way that it is no longer readable which i think living did um then you've lost whatever game you're trying to play but it's it's weird reading all the, all the plaudits on the back about you know, people like Walter allen and john updike and all these experts on the novel saying that what a wonderful novel it is what an insight it gives to working class lives because i did not think that at all it felt to me like this bizarre patronizing thing of if i'm writing about the working classes then i have to make a novel that doesn't really make sense yeah i mean it, it very much felt like a very um somebody who had no idea what they were writing about trying to write something that was sort of woke do you know what i mean 1930s woke um, <laughs> yes it definitely didn't feel authentic yeah um but yes we've come back to living i i guess but can be more positive about loving although amusingly the things that i struggled a little with in loving disappeared once i got onto living because when i I was reading loving i was thinking it's not always that easy to tell who's 
speaking because you'll suddenly just dart from one scene to another. Like they'll see someone in the distance who will head over to them and suddenly they're talking and there's been a couple words that have taken us between those two settings. There's not much scene setting, basically. It's just you're suddenly immersed in and then suddenly you're out and you're somewhere else. Which I occasionally, if I, you know, had taken my mind off things for a paragraph, I was like, oh, I'm somewhere else and these are different people. What's going on? But um, but I do agree that once, once I knew who they were, their voices were definitely distinct. Um, I could probably have worked out who they were from context if need be. And I definitely found it a lot more interesting once the whole missing jewellery thing became the main theme. Um, So yes, a a, a ring goes missing and then there's all sorts of things about um, has it been stolen? Has it been hidden? Um, Who had it last? Will the insurance man question them um, and find out what's happened to it? Etc, etc. And I thought that was a really great way of connecting the upstairs and the downstairs because much like the much like in living, you've got the foundry owners and the fa- and the workers. Mm. Here, you you do have the upstairs and downstairs in, I guess, the more usual novelistic place of the country house. Um, but I found it, it yeah, I really I did really like it. It seemed to me a bit like how people describe Ivy Compton Burnett novels to me, but how I never actually find Ivy Compton Burnett novels in that um, a little sort of style of substance, I guess, at times, and a little more fragmented than is easy to read. Certainly nothing like living. But um, I never felt like I could just relax and read it. I always felt I had to be on high alert to work out exactly what was going on and exactly who was speaking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those books where I think once you're into it, it's, I felt like I had to read it kind of in one or two sittings because if you go back from it too much, then you get lost. Um, and I found it quite an immersive experience and I liked the plot and I found the characters really interesting and I really liked the character of Charlie. Um, no, I didn't like him as a character. Yeah, just really, interesting. I yeah. found him really interesting and really distinctive and um, kind of slimy and unpleasant and that made him enjoyable to read. Um, and I think that having that, um, it all happening in one house as well made it a bit more easy to follow whereas mm-hmm. in living you're going one minute you're in the factory now you're in someone's house and now you're in the cinema and it's like who are these people again and there were also lots of people who it wasn't they were sort of in the house together certainly at the beginning and they were having a meal but they weren't related to each other and i was struggling to understand well how do they know each other who, yeah. <laughs> who are they to each other and it wasn't clear and that's where I just—I was losing patience because I was thinking, well, I, I, you're speaking to this person and it's clearly you've got some sort of significant relationship, but I cannot work out what that is. <laughs> um, yeah. And I thought, you know, there was one point where somebody hated somebody else, but then the next minute they were talking to each other and I was just like, what? I thought you didn't like him. And it was just, yeah, I couldn't follow the plot at all. Whereas living, uh, sorry, loving, I think the plot was much more clearly demarcated. Mm, it's mm. much easier to follow. And I think this goes back to the discussion that we, we were just having at the beginning of the podcast about style and substance. You know, that Henry Green's writing is very interesting and it's very experimental and it's very individual and clever. And I'm he, like Virginia Woolf, is, is trying to push the boundaries of, of what can a novel be, what can fiction be, how can we communicate voices, how can we get a react, try and get across the... Um, what it, what it's, what human speech sounds like. How can we get across the idea of, you know, the speed of conversation or how conversations flip between people, etc. But without a plot to hang it together, it doesn't work. Yeah, I think um, I was quite surprised to when I went 
uh, um, earlier today to see when they were written that living was 1929 and loving was 1945 because mm. I had sort of assumed that he got more and more experimental. I'd only read his first novel, Blindness, before, and that's quite traditional prose. It's not really, it's not very experimental at all. Is it good? So I th- yeah, I enjoyed it. It was good. It was many years ago I read it, but I did, I did like that one probably. Mm, yeah, maybe about the same as Loving. I think um, it was it was definitely interesting. Uh, I think he was very young when he wrote it as well. But yeah, I'd be interested to know if he has a trajectory. It goes, you know, he got more and more experimental and then reeled it in, or if he just goes all over the place in terms. Because I mean, someone like Virginia Woolf, she went more and more experimental till you got to the waves, and then she sort of came back into you know the years and between the acts, which are much more traditional novel style, I guess. Whereas you get someone like James Joyce who just went from portrait of artist of a young man to Ulysses to Finnegan's Wake getting further and further into whatever experiment he was doing so mm. I mean yeah I, I don't know where Court is in his in his um, oeuvre but uh, yeah well that's 40s as well because it's World War 2 so it's course, interesting yeah. yeah he's I think um, I, I think that Living is one of his earliest novels and the second yeah yeah and I think he's he's trying out something and he's probably realised it doesn't quite work and is, has gone a little bit more you know, he's kind of finessed it. He's still got the mm-hmm. the speech and the dialogue heavy prose, but there's a bit more narration and there's a bit more direction for the reader to understand exactly what's happening. Though Court didn't have a huge amount of plot, but it did have, again, a setting where we, we stayed in the same setting, which made it easier to follow. Yeah, and I think what Bill suggested we do originally, comparing it to a more traditionally told um, country house novel would have been a great idea. So sorry, Bill, that we're not doing that because it is interesting that he's writing in this genre that was very popular, I guess, throughout the Victorian period and into the mid twentieth century of, well, I guess, late Victorian. Maybe of writing the um, the whole cast of a big house, and you get more and more from the servants, I guess, in the in the twentieth century. But he's taking that quite traditional model for for a novel and overlaying it with this more distinctive and unusual writing style which i think is really interesting because he doesn't have um he's not going in this one sort of patronizing with the staff below stairs and much more elevated with the people above stairs study in terms of character they're just as devious above stairs and below stairs um there's just as much intrigue and, and odd things going on i did enjoy that we have paddy who we never get a word of dialogue from him. It's always being repeated by Kate. He says, just so like Paddy said something and Kate has to explain what it is he said. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that he set it there. And perhaps, as you say, he finessed it because when he's doing like this, I'm going to do this really experimental, elevated type of novel, but I'm going to set it in a foundry because it's a great clash of <laughs> high art and low culture. And I'm thinking, oh, is it, Henry, is it? <laughs> Whereas maybe as he got older... He got more sensible and, and I think ultimately much more interesting because you're not spending your whole time thinking, gosh, what, what, what clever writing? Cause there's no articles. <laughs> you are actually, um, appreciating the, the subtler way in which he's doing writing in an unusual way in loving. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, I think these two and party going are the ones that are, most well respected by the Henry Green community. So mm. yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Wow. Who knows? 
Who does know? I mean, it's all just, I suppose it's, it's kind of, you know, some people probably love that sort of thing, but for me, it's just not my cup of tea. I mean, loving, I really loved, but also I suppose I also really love upstairs, downstairs sort of country house novels. So the, mm, the, mm. the setting was much more interesting to me than, than this one. If I liked books set in factories, then perhaps I would have <laughs> got more involved with this one, but. Yes, I can't think that I've ever read any book set in a factory that is coming to mind. But I must have done at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it's like north and south, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I feel like you know, the John Brain period of you know angry young working-class men novels probably has mm-hmm. quite a few. But I read a really good one called Of Love and Hunger by Julia McLaren Ross. It was about a travelling vacuum cleaner salesman, which isn't quite the same. But, no. but, but same... Same sort of spectrum. Um, anyway, Rachel, which of these two are you going to choose? Oh, well, shocker, Simon. I think <laughs> I'm going to go for loving. Do you know what? So am I. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> and, I mean, there's a very easy metric for this one in that I have both of them, and from tomorrow I will only have one of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the very lucky charity shop near me where someone will maybe stumble across this one. I can't imagine it's ever going to get bought by that charity shop. Well, you never know. Gosh, I just realised the front quote on mine says, the mas- this, sorry, the masterpiece of this disciplined, poetic and grimly realistic, witty and melancholy, amorous and austere volituary. I don't know what volituary means. Um, that quote is from Rosamund Lehman. Wow. Who I think is a wonderful writer. So Indeed. You know, she clearly had different opinions for other people's writing to, to me. To me. Yes. Isn't that interesting how you can really admire a writer's writing and not admire the writing that they admire? Yes. Well, there we are. Maybe she felt forced into it. Maybe he was a friend. Maybe they were sleeping together. I mean, I you just don't know. <laughs> I assume. Yeah. Well, she was friend. Oh, sorry, he was probably friends with her brother, wasn't he? Yes. Mm, all that circle. Yeah. Anyway, that was fun. We were both in, in agreement Perfect. today. Yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you again, Rosemary and Bill um, and Gregory and all the people who did the question in the middle. It was lovely yeah. to have lots of contributors this time. Uh, next time, we're going to go something probably more in our wheelhouse. We're doing Adrian Bell, um, yes. Cordroy and the Suffolk Harvest, a Suffolk Harvest? Uh, a Suffolk Harvest. A Suffolk Harvest, because we're going through Rachel's shelf alphabetically. <laughs> <laughs> And I've bought a very beautiful, actually, copy of A Suffolk Harvest, so I'm oh, glad to have that in the house. It's identical to mine. Is it an old copy? It is. It's sort of white, but with a little cottage scene on the front. Yeah, that's exactly my copy. Oh, I put it like a lovely. little lino cut on the front. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Let's hope the contents are just as good. Oh, they are. Oh, good. Oh, you've already read it? Yeah. You've read both of them? We yeah. can. We can. We, we don't need to space out our episode so much. We can record sooner. <laughs> I feel like we need to do more episodes. We're taking so long between them. I know. Sorry, everyone. We're just, you know, school. What can I say? Yeah. Well, now you're on holiday. And I'll be reading and I'm going I'm going on a train journey to Devon, so I'll have plenty of time. Ah, nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, great. Okay, we will speak to you next time. Yeah, thanks for thanks listening, for everyone. everyone. Bye. Bye.